There is no justice system anymore. There's only a legal system, and it's corrupt. For proof, look no further than the abusive and vindictive indictment of Donald Trump engineered by a politically biased district attorney in a brazen bid to interfere with the next presidential election by targeting his own party's leading opponent. Alvin Bragg, a progressive Democrat, ran on the campaign pledge of prosecuting Trump. He vowed to exploit the immense powers of his office to bring down the former president. Never mind that candidate Bragg was not privy to any evidence or documents that Trump had ever done anything wrong, had ever violated the law. Being bereft of facts did not deter Bragg from publicly accusing Trump of felonious conduct. Upon assuming office, Bragg immediately launched an investigation in search of a crime. Upon reviewing the law and the facts, he summarily dropped it. There was no case to be made. But an intensive public pressure campaign led by his disgruntled former assistant DA who quit in a fit of pique forced him to reverse course. Bragg suddenly caved in and soon adopted this ludicrous legal theory to fulfill his promise to voters and satisfy his party benefactors. Before he was ever elected, Bragg prejudged the merits of a case that he had yet to bring. He promised an outcome that was preordained. He perverted the legal system by misusing his prosecutorial authority to punish a political nemesis and advance his own career. He obliterated any sense of fairness and impartiality with a pernicious case driven by prejudice. His malign behavior is an affront to justice because it is profoundly unethical. Bragg should face disbarment for his egregious abuse of power. It won't happen, of course, because the New York Bar Association is notoriously liberal. Its governing members are secretly cheering on the district attorney. Corruption in the legal system is embedded with deep roots. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over half the world's wheat. What does this mean for you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why you should stock up on the best-selling Four Patriots Survival Food. Create your own stockpile by using the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Four Patriots Survival Food is hand-packed in the USA with different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, and their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code G-R-E-G-G to get 10% off your first purchase of Four Patriots Survival Food. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. 
The case against Donald Trump was laughingly referred to in the Manhattan DA's office as the zombie case. It was repeatedly pronounced dead, only to be brought back to life. Bragg himself killed it when he realized it was a farce, but his hatred of Trump was so consuming that he resurrected it from the grave. And to make that happen, he contorted the law and twisted the facts to jam a square peg into a legal round hole. Even some diehard liberals and notable Democrats concede that the charges against Trump are lame. They grumble that the case is transparently political, and they openly fret that a failed prosecution may result in a public backlash with severe political consequences for their party. But the real wreckage falls on the public's perception that our legal system is no longer fair. It is being weaponized to achieve a partisan purpose. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill, pick up there. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, no fan of Donald Trump's, called the charges an abomination. Uh, this is an abomination. It's the epitome of the abuse of prosecutorial power uh, to bring a case that would not be brought against anyone else. Uh, they are going after the man, not a crime, mm. and the legal theory. Uh, frankly, is pathetically weak. The case is held together by, you know, chicken wire and and uh, uh, paper clips and rubber bands. It's it's a lousy case. It's uh, and uh, it, it's it's a shame. Uh, it's a shameful episode in our history where this local prosecutor is trying to affect the political process by bringing this uh, case. The case centers around non-disclosure agreements in exchange for money paid to two women who claim affairs with Trump many years ago, which he denies. But such contracts are perfectly lawful. Bragg claims candidate Trump somehow violated campaign finance laws by failing to account for them as donations and contributions. As I've explained in a series of recent columns, Bragg is inventing a legal theory that does not exist in the law. This is why the Department of Justice pers- This is why the Department of Justice declined to pursue it, as well as the Federal Elections Commission, the FEC. Both examined the matter and correctly concluded that the campaign law that Bragg now cites and seeks to exploit and manipulate was not applicable. In a recent column in the Wall Street Journal, the former chairman of the FEC, Bradley Smith, wrote, the crime that Mr. Bragg claims is being covered up isn't a crime at all. If he is somehow able to make these charges stick, it will betray fundamental tenets of campaign finance law, and those who believe in the rule of law. There were other obvious reasons for payments, both personal and commercial, preserving the name and reputation of Trump's eponymous real estate and business empire is just one of them. As Smith points out, an obligation isn't a campaign expenditure if it exists irrespective of the campaign. 
Even if Trump's campaign also benefits, the dual purpose forecloses a violation of the law. But Bragg's burden of proof faces other roadblocks imposed by the law. He would have to show that Trump was personally involved in falsifying records, which is a misdemeanor. And then he would have to prove that Trump not only understood the complex and convoluted campaign laws that few people can comprehend, but that he intended to violate them. Bragg's star witness is Trump's ex-lawyer, the thoroughly disgraced and disbarred Michael Cohen. He is an infamous liar who went to prison for lying to the IRS, lying to banks, and lying to Congress. Cohen is one of the most disreputable and sleazy people you will ever have the misfortune to meet. His dishonesty is exceeded only by his unscrupulous zeal to destroy Trump. If Cohen ever takes the witness stand, he will be eviscerated on cross-examination. The feebleness of Bragg's case will inevitably be met with a flurry of motions by Trump's legal team to dismiss the case by arguing that it is not supported by the law and that the alleged facts do not amount to any crimes. The first motion will likely be a very legitimate challenge based on the statute of limitations that expired long ago. The fact that Bragg is determined to pursue a zombie case underscores his contempt for the rule of law and the sacred canons of professional ethics. It's the primary duty of a prosecutor not to convict, but to see that justice is done. He is duty-bound to be fair and impartial. He must refrain from political and personal prejudice. He may not be influenced by hostility or personal animus toward a defendant. Bragg's vitriolic rhetoric during his campaign for office and his promise to target Trump is exactly what ethical rules were intended to prevent. Bragg obliterated any semblance of fairness and neutrality. Bragg has been chasing Trump, not crimes. This is a flagrant violation of his due process rights designed to protect citizens from abusive prosecutions. Is there any doubt that someone not named Donald Trump would have been treated differently? As I noted in an earlier column, Hillary Clinton secretly funded the phony anti-Trump dossier in 2016 by paying more than a million dollars. She listed it as a legal expense, even though its sole purpose was to smear Trump and advance her campaign against him. The FEC fined Hillary for blatantly violating campaign finance laws, yet neither Bragg nor his predecessor gave a fleeting thought to ever charging Hillary Clinton. Of course not. She's a member of their same political party, so there's, you know, professional courtesy. Trump is the victim of selective prosecution and political persecution. As district attorney wielding a big bat, Bragg has smashed the rule of law and reinforced the belief that there is no system of justice anymore 
only a corrupted legal system. Joining me now to talk about it is former counsel for President Trump, David Schoen. He's a civil liberties attorney, former board member of the Alabama Civil Liberties Union. I've known him for a long time, straight shooter. David, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I know that you think this is a junk case against Trump. What would be his legal strategy going forward? Well, I think uh, uh, junk is to say the least, I think, about this case. You know, you've written some of the leading pieces about this case, Greg, and how misguided it is and all that, and you're right on. Um, I think the legal strategy from the start has to be uh, emotions practice. And I think down the road, there'll be further motions to be filed if the first ones don't succeed. But I think uh, shortly after the arraignment, uh, at least three motions to dismiss ought to be filed. I think that uh, there's a real issue here about the statute of limitations, and uh, it's certainly not something to be taken for granted. As you know, we haven't seen the indictment yet, but assuming some of the charges at least are based on this Stormy Daniels and or McDougal uh, payment uh, business, the theory that, that's been bandied about by the prosecutor's office in Mark Pomerantz's book and otherwise is that there's a misdemeanor under New York's penal law 175.05. It's a misdemeanor to falsify business records. Um, and in this case, the claim is that fees paid to Michael Cohen to reimburse him uh, were falsified as legal expenses. So that, that has a two-year statute of limitations. They then use this convoluted theory, apparently, to piggyback to a felony under 175.10, makes it a felony that if you committed the misdemeanor, and you did so with the intent to commit or conceal another crime, then it's a felony, which would be subject to the five-year statute of limitations. I say that motion dismiss on statute of limitations grounds ought to focus on the two-year, because an absolute predicate to the felony count is proof of the misdemeanor. If you can't prove the misdemeanor because the statute of limitations expired on it, you can't have the felony, period. It's that simple, and that's exactly how the charge reads. But even if you had the five-year statute of limitations somehow. The way they try to get it, we're now, you know, seven years down the road, six and a half years. The way they try to get around that is the statute that New York passed under uh, criminal procedure law 30.10, section 4A, that says when you're um, uh, calculating the dates for statute of limitations purposes, you exclude from your count of the five years or the two years days in which a person was quote, continuously outside this state. Courts have upheld the statute, 1999 case, People versus Noble, upheld the statute. Um, but what they said in there is the fundamental purpose for this statute is to deal with the difficulty of apprehending a fugitive out of state. That's not the problem with the president of the United States, you know, where he is right. every minute of every day. It, it, it sort of says, you know, it's to help people uh, in government prosecutors who can't find somebody because exactly. they don't know his whereabouts. Exactly. But everybody knew Trump's whereabouts. Exactly. I think also, though, that while they have in the past construed the term continuously to mean something other than continuously, in other words, they just count the days. So if you're out of town, out of the state for 30 days, but then you come back for 30 days, you went on a summer vacation, the days you were out are excluded from counting, and the days you were there are counted. That's not continuously out of state. That's out of state right. for 10 days. So anyway, I think all of those things have to be challenged on the statute of limitations. And there's real prejudice. What the reason for statute of limitations is to be able to defend 
against a crime contemporaneously with the crime. You have notes, you have recollection, you have witnesses. All of those things are gone after the passage of time. All right, so number one, I say statute of limitations. Number two, I would suggest filing a motion to both disqualify D.A. Bragg and dismiss the indictment based on his involvement. As you know and have reported excellently, Bragg ran on a campaign of getting Trump. It's completely unethical, inappropriate on every level for a public prosecutor to target any individual citizen, uh, American, uh, for prosecution. And in his campaign, he said, whoever gets this job, is that person going to be able to convict Donald Trump? Convict? You haven't even investigated the guy yet. He had no access to files. He didn't know what the evidence was. (laughs) He was a candidate for office and therefore wasn't entitled to get into the, his, his predecessor's file to see what evidence there was, and yet he was preordaining and promising voters, vote for me, I'll give you the outcome that I want and you want. Absolutely. Very well put and exactly correct. Um, and, and so that, that motion to dismiss and to disqualify Bragg's office applies no matter what the charges are, because this was clearly, as we've discussed before, you know, Justice Jackson feared the most dangerous problem with a prosecutor is that they pick a target and then come up with some kind of cockamamie theory of criminal liability to fit that target. That's what's happened here. The third motion I would say, and I definitely would file it, would be a motion to recuse Judge Merchan. You know, I see many in the media criticizing Donald Trump for criticizing Judge Merchan and even some of his lawyers working on this thing now who are hired to sort of try to stave off the indictment, not, not necessarily to try this case. They've been saying, oh, no, I think he's a fair guy. I have no reason to believe he's biased. Wrong. He is biased. He's anti-everything to do with Trump. He comes off as a mild-mannered guy, a nice enough guy. Seems to me to be very insecure and not competent. But beyond all of that, I believe that this is classic judge shopping. I don't believe in coincidences. Judge Merchant sat on the Trump organization case. He sits on the Bannon case. And now he's assigned to this case. And I'm afraid that this harkens back to a practice that this district attorney's office did, unique in the state of New York, in which they literally handpicked the judge. Their practice was, and I believe still is, they pick a judge to supervise the grand jury proceedings, knowing that that judge will then stay on the case for the duration of the case. That practice went on for years. Lawyers in New York challenged it on constitutional grounds, and they lost, and the court said essentially no individual defendant has standing to, or a due process right, to a random selection of judges. However, a person then took that challenge to federal court on a habeas corpus petition, and the federal court said, we're not getting this on direct appeal. If we did, this could really be a problem uh, of constitutional uh, level. But the district attorney's office promised that court something like eight years ago that they had stopped this practice of judge shopping. I don't believe it. I think this has to be at least examined. How is it that Judge Merchan ends up again on this case? And now there's talk that he's going to impose a gag order, which, uh, in my experience at least, would be perfectly consistent with the way he approaches. I found him to be a yes person for the government, uh, for the prosecution. I raised this in the context of a case uh, in which his rulings contrasted terribly between the prosecution and the defense. So he immediately summoned me to the bench and he said, we don't put up with this kind of behavior, counsel. You've insinuated that I'm unfair because there's a big media presence there. And uh, I said, well, Judge, let me be clear. I believe everything I've said in my heart to be absolutely true. And I didn't intend to insinuate anything. I believe the court's being unfair, the client. And I, I think that's his approach. I'll let, one last thing about him, I'll tell you uh, two things. One is, 
In that court, they don't have electronic filing. All documents are filed by uh, paper copy. So it's very difficult to have a public trial. The media doesn't have ready access to it. In the Trump organization case, the media found that he would keep the file in his chambers so they couldn't have any access to it. In our case, he communicated by email. Those emails weren't part of the public file. And the district attorney had a protective order put in place. It was so bad and such blanket uh, treatment of everything. At one point, they produced a 20 terabyte hard drive and told the judge they wanted that to be entirely under a protective order, sealed from the public so no public couldn't see it. I said, Judge, look at the footnote on their production letter. They say they've never even reviewed the terabyte, the 20 terabyte hard drive. How can we say it all goes under a protective order? But he allowed it. So that's what they're up against. I think they need to file a motion, at least make the record for recusal. And that ought to be one they could appeal immediately. Right. Speaking of appeals, let's say they file a motion to dismiss based on the statute of limitations has expired and the judge rejects it. And they file also a motion to dismiss that the charge simply doesn't uh, isn't supported by the law. That this, this convoluted theory uh, hinges on you know a misdemeanor that's being supercharged into a felony, uh, a federal campaign finance, uh, and you know here is a local prosecutor who can only charge under state law that's bootstrapping a federal crime. And let's say that motion is dismissed. Uh, Trump's legal team would file what are known as interlocutory appeals, right, to a higher court? Yes, they would. I'm not sure these would be immediately appealable unless this judge agreed to certify them for interlocutory appeal. They should be because you can end up spending a lot of time and money otherwise, but they may only be appealable after the conviction unless this judge certifies otherwise. And remember, Greg, you know, we don't know yet what the indictment charges. I believe this prosecutor couldn't have been dumb enough to have the whole case center around Michael Cohen or even the McDougal incident. I think he may be, you know, charging some business crimes in there, piggybacking off the Trump organization. I don't know. It's all speculation. But if this whole thing centers around Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels and McDougal, then yes, the, and so-called, you know, in, illegal campaign contributions, then I think yes. And you've seen, you have in one of your columns, you refer to a, an election law expert who has said how badly this perverts campaign finance law. Yeah. Uh, Bradley A. Smith, who was the former chairman of the SEC, Federal Election Commission, who says, you know, that the crime that Bragg claims is, is perpetrated here isn't a crime at all under the federal campaign finance laws. Uh, it, it betrays the tenets of campaign finance laws to claim that Trump somehow violated it. It's just, it's, I mean, if you read the federal campaign finance laws, uh, this doesn't qualify as a campaign donation. Now, the Hillary Clinton case, it did because the sole purpose was to benefit her campaign. There wasn't a dual ancillary purpose of a personal uh, motive to protect her commercial interests or a personal uh, you know, motive to protect the, the family name. I mean, there was only one reason why she paid and the DNC a, a more than a million dollars for the anti-Trump dossier to Christopher Steele, and that was to frame and smear Trump. And, and 
in the end, she and the Democratic National Committee were both fined by the Federal Election Commission. So, I mean, this is yet another case of selective prosecution. Bragg and his predecessor never even thought about looking into criminal charges against Hillary Clinton, who was uh, a New York resident. Yeah, you know, Greg, I mean, I haven't even seen this written about now, and it's such a shocking, clear parallel. And people say, oh, what, this whataboutism does, shouldn't be an argument. They're dead wrong. The American people are entitled to believe and expect the equal application of the law. Uh, I think you ought to frankly tell your listeners about your books, because uh, you cover the Hillary Clinton stuff as in much detail as anybody possibly could without leave no question. I personally, by the way, have said, I think whatever she paid the person who smashed her hard drive was a campaign contribution. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, deleting uh, 33,000 uh, emails that were under a congressional subpoena. If that ain't obstruction of justice, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what is. Um let me talk to you a little bit more broadly uh, about this case. If you look at the polling data, Americans are outraged. Trump's support has shot up. Uh, you know, he uh, made five million in donations in 48 hours after the announcement of the indictment. Is this a reflection that people recognize this case for what it is? A trumped up charge politically motivated. I think absolutely. I think that this whole atmosphere of get Trump, get Trump, get Trump, uh, it's been around for quite a while. You know, I, I refer back to Jerry Nadler in 2019, congressman from New York, who said, we simply cannot trust the voters to get rid of Donald Trump. We have to use other methods. About as undemocratic a comment as I've ever heard from a public official in my life. And so I think people have been seeing this get Trump, get Trump. They saw what the Mueller so-called investigation turned out to be. Andrew Weissman campaigned to get Trump. He's unrelenting and all of that. He tries to get as much face time on TV with another theory. He and Norm Eisen, get Trump, get Trump, get Trump. I think the public's fed up with it. What you see in this case is, and again, you covered it in your column. Um, this is a coalescence of forces one never would have thought. You've got people as diverse as Bill Barr and Andrew Cuomo saying, and neither of whom likes Donald Trump, apparently, saying, this is just dead wrong. It's inappropriate for the district attorney, Bragg, to have done this. It simply reeks of politics, partisan politics. And this idea that, you know, we see now from some in the Democratic Party saying, well, no man is above the law, no person's above the law. That's not what this is. This is putting partisan politics above the Constitution, above the rule of law. We can't have that in our country. You know, um, I heard somebody say, and in fact, I'll tell you who it was. It was Alan Dershowitz. You know, Alan, sure. uh, you know, Harvard uh, emeritus professor of, of law who was part of uh, the defense team for Trump uh, in uh, one of the two impeachment cases. Yeah, first one. Yeah. And Alan says, you know, he'd move the venue. I'm not sure that gets rid of the judge. Uh, what do you think of that? I've seen a number of people call for They talk about Rockland County and so on. I don't think that's happening. I think this is a national, international story. I don't know that. Sure, you can say polling data shows that, you know, uh, Manhattan, New York County is far and away uh, anti-Trump and so on. 
listen, there's no downside to the motion and there's a legitimate good faith basis for filing it. I don't think it gets granted. I don't know that it cures any, the problem in this case. This case goes beyond any jury problem. This case is, is just an outrage, the, the idea that it would be brought. Can Trump get a fair trial in Manhattan? Uh, I worry about that. I'd hate to say that anybody can't get a fair trial any place, but I, I really worry about that. I think uh, you know certainly it's been poisoned there. The media there has poisoned things to a greater degree than most places. Um, I worry about it. I worry about what kind of jury instructions he gets in this case from this judge. But you know, you raised the point earlier. I think he's enti- absolutely entitled as a matter of law to a jury instruction that if the jury were to find that the payment was made and that the payment was for any purpose other than the election, in other words, embarrassment, the protect his wife, and so on, they must find him not guilty as a matter of law. That would be reasonable doubt um, and an alternative theory. So I don't know. Look, I hope I hope he can get a fair trial, but uh, we'll see what's going to happen. If the judge imposes a gag order, then I don't think he can get a fair trial because the public won't know so much of the uh, misconduct the DA engaged in, and they won't be able to hear about how uh, terribly politically partisan this entire uh, investigation was. I, you know, I have to tell you, um, people don't know what he- goes on the grand jury. When Bob Costello went into the grand jury room to s- expose his notes from personal conversations as Michael Cohen's legal advisor, he said that the district attorney didn't want the grand jury to hear it. He wouldn't ask a right. single question about Stormy Daniels. He uh, And Bob kept volunteering. Why don't you want the grand jury to hear this stuff, folks? This is irrelevant evidence. I have contemporaneous notes from my conversations. So It's exculpatory evidence. Yep. That That is to say, it tends to show that Michael Cohen, the chief witness, is lying uh, and that uh, you know Donald Trump is innocent. Now, uh, under the Brady rules, of course, you cannot withhold exculpatory evidence from the defendant, but there is no such rule uh, in front of a grand jury, but it's unconscionable conduct. It's reprehensible. Uh, you know, it, I think prosecutors, even in front of a grand jury, are duty bound to be fair and impartial and equitable. But hiding evidence, concealing relevant dispository evidence in front of a grand jury is beyond the bounds of legal ethics. And, it, you know, it is... It is silly for me to think for one moment that people like Mark Pomerantz and Alvin Bragg would ever face disbarment proceedings because the New York bar is highly politicized. I'm sure that the officers who govern the conduct of members of the bar are secretly cheering on Alvin Bragg. Sure. By the way, if any part of this indictment is based on Michael Cohen or Michael Cohen's testimony or even documents that he produced, what are they going to do about the on-the-record comment by the chief of their economics bureau in the district attorney's office, Giulietta Lozano, who said she would never believe anything Michael Cohen ever said about any subject. This is a chief administrator within that office. How does the office then proceed with anything to do with Michael Cohen? And Bragg himself is quoted as saying (laughs) he could never imagine an indictment supported by Michael Cohen's testimony. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of my remarks, I said, there's no justice system anymore. There's only a legal system and it's corrupt. Um, you know, I hate to say that I've been a lawyer for 43 years, but I've seen it devolve the justice system into now what is a, you know, hyper politicized, weaponized, 
uh, effort by unscrupulous, unprincipled prosecutors like Alvin Bragg, who have now decided to criminalize politics for partisan gain. What are your thoughts on that as we wrap up our conversation here? This case reflects as poorly on our criminal justice system as any case I've encountered in a long time. I'd like to think the system still works, that there's some good judges and some decent prosecutors out there. Um, I'm worried about the criminal defense bar because since these times have become so politicized, it's it's difficult to re- uh, represent unpopular people. You know, Alan Dershowitz, you mentioned earlier, has always been a champion of representing the underrepresented and the unpopular. And I've always followed him. He and I have done a few shows on that subject. Nowadays, you know, it's it's even more difficult than I've seen in the past to, to represent political figures. I, I've said before, I represent right now on a pro bono basis, a defendant in a capital murder case, killed a woman and her children for no reason. He was on drugs. People say, oh, you're doing God's work at Alabama, the death penalty work, you're saving a poor man and so on and so forth. You represented Donald Trump. You can't teach at my school anymore. You can't be part of my listserv anymore. You're excluded from groups. Some people have said they should take away my degrees from the schools I went to because I represented Donald Trump and his, his lead counsel in his impeachment trial. Unbelievable. It really is. Uh, David Sean, uh, one of the best lawyers I know, a uh, civil rights attorney, and uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to join us today on The Brief. Thanks, David. Great to spend time with you. Thank you very much. Great show. All right. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.